protests were held in dozens of cities around the world today against agriculture giant Monsanto and its genetically modified organisms. The march against Monsanto was organized to bring awareness to what some call a disruption to Mother Nature. Genetically engineered foods, often known as GMOs, get people riled up. But changing foods to make them tastier or more resistant to disease has been happening for a long time. All those varieties of apples you see at the supermarket? Many are the result of a cultivation technique called grafting, where two types of apples are physically grown together to produce a new variety. The practice dates back thousands of years. Over time, the agricultural trial and error moved from the fields and into the lab. Scientists figured out how to take a desired trait from one plant and add it to the genes of another. Those are the genetically modified organisms, the GMOs, consumers have come to know and sometimes fear. I think one of the problems with the whole GMO debacle in the past was that there was a feeling that unnatural things were being done to plants for commercial value. Now there's a new approach with a gene editing tool called CRISPR. CRISPR allows for control over genetics that was previously unimaginable, including in the food coming to your grocery store. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Anthony Green. Instead of mixing genes, scientists use CRISPR like a pair of molecular scissors to cut and paste genes that influence certain traits, directly out of the plant's DNA. They can make corn that's resistant to drought or wheat with less gluten for people with allergies. And they can do it faster, cheaper, and easier than ever before. U.S. regulators have said that traditional GMO foods will need labels starting next year. But foods genetically engineered with CRISPR were given a pass. They won't need a special label. And some see this as cause for concern. In this encore edition of The Future of Everything, reporter Jennifer Strong examines the scientific quest to optimize what we eat, like the tomato. So we're in Cold Spring Harbor. It's out on Long Island. They have a greenhouse here where they're working on crispered crops. It's probably not the setting that folks would imagine. There's a lot of air traffic. We're off the side of a highway. We're not that far from LaGuardia Airport and New York City. Hi, sorry. Hi, are you Zach? I'm Zach. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Jennifer Strong. Hi, Jennifer. Zachary Lippman is a plant biologist at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. I'm here to tour his greenhouse, and on our way in, we see two scientists using little metal tools to scrape the seeds out of tomatoes. This is Eitan and Gina. They're technicians in the lab, and what they're doing now is extracting seeds from fruits that ripen in the greenhouse. And this is because we need the seeds for the next set of genetic experiments. And so we're going to extract these seeds, and then we're going to sow them in the next week or two. After removing the seeds, they toss everything else into a big trash can. I mean, you can eat these, of course, but we just want to be efficient and get through them and basically get the seeds out. And a lot of them just don't taste that great, <laughs> you know? I mean, these are different varieties. Some of them are better than others, and it's sort of a distraction to say, well, let's save them so we can eat them. So it's slippery in here because there's irrigation that drips from the pots, and then we get some algae growing. So be careful when you walk down. The greenhouse is full of tomatoes. Some have been gene-edited, Others haven't, and they look and smell the same. To figure out which is which, you have to compare their DNA. And the control is a tomato you've probably heard of. From only the thickest, juiciest Heinz tomatoes, no one grows ketchup like Heinz. The goal is to maximize fruit production. So this is a nice cluster of cocktail tomatoes. So you've seen those in the grocery store. 
And so we're interested in why do you have seven to eight flowers and fruits? Why don't you have 20? Maybe you have some branching to give you two clusters or two tomatoes on the vine, right? I mean, I think tomato in general has a lot of room for improvement. And if this sounds a bit like something we already do with plants, you're kind of right. Humans have been breeding plants for thousands of years, and we've been eating GMOs for decades. But Lippmann is not making GMOs. He's using a gene editing tool called CRISPR. And this particular new tool is just something that happens to be much more powerful than any of the other tools that we've ever had before, much more efficient. There's a big difference between how we define GMOs and CRISPR foods. GMOs are made by putting DNA from one organism into another. It's how they got their Frankenfood nickname. But for now, CRISPR foods don't have any outside DNA. Jennifer Doudna of the University of California, Berkeley, is one of the creators of CRISPR. You can think of the DNA in a cell. It's the instruction manual for the cell. So imagine being able to go into that encyclopedic information and go to a particular page in one of the volumes and make a change to the sentence or a word or even a single letter. With GMOs, scientists can only add more words to the encyclopedia. For instance, they can take some qualities of one strain of corn and add it into another to make the vegetable resistant to herbicides. Now scientists can leave that frankenfood part out because with CRISPR... You can actually program it to go to a particular place in the genetic code of life that's in all cells and make a cut to the DNA that triggers cells to change the DNA sequence as the cut is repaired. Doudna says CRISPR is a way for scientists to speed up evolution, something plants have been doing on their own and with the help of farmers for centuries. I don't know how many people have seen what the precursor to uh, modern tomatoes looks like. Looks nothing like <laughs> like uh, tomato plants, you know, and the, the fruits are nothing like tomatoes. So how did we get to modern tomatoes? Well, you know, there's been a lot of breeding that's been done over hundreds of years. So I think it really comes down to thinking a little bit about how plants that we use today have been generated by plant breeders and how a technology now gives scientists a much more precise way to make changes to plants that introduce only a desired change with nothing else coming along. But not everyone thinks of CRISPR as an extension of evolution. One of the most interesting aspects of the debate over CRISPR food turns on the issue of whether or not it's natural. Hi, I'm Amy Doxer-Marcus. I'm a staff reporter for The Wall Street Journal covering health, science, and medicine. She's been covering CRISPR advances and controversies since its major breakthrough in 2012. If you talk to people who want to use CRISPR, they'll argue that this is not an unnatural technique because CRISPR is only used to make tweaks in the plant's natural DNA. The people who are opposed to it and who are leaders in the anti-GMO movement will argue it doesn't matter that the end product doesn't have any foreign DNA in it. The process by which you made this is an unnatural process. And she says winning the approval of consumers will be crucial to CRISPR's success. I think people really do have to understand a little bit more about the science behind what is going on their dinner plate before they're going to be willing to move forward with eating it. Scientists like Doudna are careful not to call CRISPR's plants genetically modified, but genetically engineered. It's an attempt to separate it from what consumers already know about science-altered food, 
Back in the greenhouse, I ask Lipman, does that distinction even make sense? If you're using CRISPR to change a tomato's genes, aren't those genes technically modified? It is genetically modified. It wouldn't be this big and beautiful and sweet if there hadn't been some genetic modification. Scientists and farmers and seed companies need to figure out how they'll market CRISPR foods or they could undermine their product. And we know this because the biotech industry has been at this crossroads before. My name is Belinda Martineau, and I am a former genetic engineer. I worked at a small startup biotech company called CalGene Incorporated in the late 80s and early 90s when ag biotech was getting started. She was part of the team that brought the first GMO product to grocery stores. It was called the Flavor Saver Tomato, flavor without the O and savor without the E. It was a very small company. And so I can remember we had a session where we're all sitting in a conference room and we filled a whiteboard with possible names for our tomato. And it ended up that our CEO of the company, who was not sitting in in that conference room with us, came up with the name Flavor Saver, I don't know, in a taxi cab. Tomatoes are difficult to mass farm. They need to ripen on the vine to turn vibrant red and taste sweet. But tomatoes ripen naturally don't have enough time to get to the grocery stores before they go bad. It's why the ones in the produce aisle taste like wet cardboard. They're harvested when they're green and ripened artificially. The scientists at CalGene wanted a tomato that could ripen on the vine and ship to stores. And that did not pan out that well. It ended up that our tomatoes, it really was just on the rotting side of the softening of a tomato and not on the ripening side. Researchers weren't able to control the technology enough to get the product they wanted. DNA made its way into the flavor saver that wasn't supposed to. And I guess that's when I kind of stepped back and said, you know, do we really know enough about this technology to be going to market with it? Still, they got the FDA's approval. The end result was that we could sit a transformed tomato on the shelf in the lab next to a control tomato, and six weeks later, the genetically engineered tomato would look just fine, like you just picked it, and the control would be a pile of tomato goo. And people loved it. They flew off the shelves. CalGene had trouble keeping them on the shelves, in fact. And here's where we get back to that odd branding, flavor saver. Martineau thinks that the tomato's success relied on CalGene's transparency. We labeled the tomato when it hit stores, even though we didn't have to, according to the FDA's rules about it. We had point-of-purchase brochures that described the technology we used. CalGene scientists were happy. Consumers were happy. So what went wrong? The companies that came after CalGene were not as transparent, and they weren't going to label Martineau believes this sparked the public's mistrust of GMOs and the agriculture industry. And she thinks maybe we should be skeptical of CRISPR and its potential problems, too. I mean, I strongly feel that it is the job of scientists who know the ins and outs of a technology to explain it to not just the regulatory agencies, but to the public at large. And that includes the possible risks and the warts of the technology. No technology is perfect. CRISPR can be programmed to cut a particular place on the DNA, but it's not perfect. It could end up editing DNA scientists didn't intend to target. So we just have to be careful with the new technology, but I think the starting point is to lay all this information out 
and not pick and choose just, oh, this is more precise. And, and CRISPR is more precise, but we have to keep in mind these off-target effects. And I think to get the public behind it, you got to start with laying it all out on the table. But she isn't holding her breath. In fact, she's so disheartened by the lack of transparency in bioengineering, she left the field. Today, she's a science writer at the University of California, Davis. The Flavor Saver Tomato retired, too. Seed giant Monsanto bought CalGene and discontinued production. As for Monsanto, it's one of the seed giants pursuing CRISPR, along with Dow DuPont, Bayer, and Syngenta AG. And Jacob Bungie, who covers agriculture for the Wall Street Journal, says even startups are investing in it. The reason for that is because the USDA right now considers gene editing not to be the same as the GMO practice that the the companies have been doing for, for the past few decades. And then, so as a result, these gene-edited crops don't need to go through the same lengthy regulatory process. Getting GMOs through the regulatory process can be time-consuming and expensive. The process to develop a GMO crop from start to finish can take well over $100 million. For that reason, the GMO crop development has been pursued mainly by the biggest companies with the deepest pockets. And there's another big incentive for companies. While the USDA has made it mandatory for GMO foods to have labels by 2020, CRISPR is still exempt. The reason? The USDA's current criteria for bioengineered food states that it contains DNA from other organisms and it couldn't be created naturally. Foods edited with CRISPR don't fall into that category. Technically, they're the same plant, just with a tweak to their own DNA, which means it'll be up to companies to decide whether to let consumers know they're getting CRISPR products. Again, the Wall Street Journal's Amy Doxer Marcus. There is a feeling among scientists and companies that even if USDA gives you permission and says, you don't need to go through these steps with us. We consider this not a genetically modified organism in the traditional sense of the word. People understand that to gain consumer acceptance, they are going to have to involve some kind of regulatory authority. They are going to have to get some kind of societal permission. They're not going to go off on their own and try to sell you this food without it going through some kind of regulatory process. Meaning the success of the product may not be up to the scientists or the seed companies. Now, the real test will be with consumers. They're going to be the ones who determine the outcome of this debate. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was reported by Jennifer Strong and produced by Christian Schwab, with help from Amy Doxer Marcus, Jacob Bungie, Laura Sim, Brian Gutierrez, and Garrett Crow. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Kateri Yoakum is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Green.